up here tonight. Hey. Oranges for all of you. How about that? Yeah, just like that. Was that for me? Thank you. I don't think, I mean, I'll have to save it till later, but it was nice of you still. How was your day? All right, now, uh, it's Thursday, and uh, so I'm assuming, how many of you at this point, I asked you this earlier in the week, I'm guessing we've made a little progress, how many of you at this point have met the person you're going to marry? You, you're positive, oh, wow, all right, you want to you wanna point to them, where are they? You don't want me to know, okay, how many, couple, all right, yeah, good for you guys, all right, here's the thing. Here's what I want to know, uh, in, like, in like 10 years, come and find me, okay, all right. In 10 years, come and find me and let me know if your prediction was true. I want to know if you, if you actually met the person you're going to marry, I'll be interested in how that works out. Hey, last night, Hume Lake, stay with me, last night we talked about, we finished in John 9. You'll remember, we're working our way through the Gospel of John, we're trying to do the whole thing, which means we've got to move fast tonight. We're going to summarize some things in chapters 10 through 20 as we progress but when we finished last night in chapter 9, remember that Jesus had healed a man who'd never been able to see in his whole life. He's been born blind. Jesus heals that guy, and the religious leaders, instead of being stoked that the guy can see now, are mad. Because of when Jesus did it, because of what the truth of who Jesus is, and the truth of who Jesus was, what it says about them, and their piousness, and their religiosity, and some of their power wielding, they were upset about who Jesus was, and they wanted to kill him. And remember at the end of John chapter 9, we finished here last night, that they look at Jesus and they say, are you calling us blind? Right? Are you calling us blind? And remember his response was, if you would only admit you're blind, you'd be able to see. But the fact that you admit, or, or that you defend your own sight means that you remain blind, right? We talked last night about the fact that the truth of who Jesus is reveals the truth of who we are, and the truth of who we are is that all of us are broken. We talked last night about sin, and we defined that, that God created us to glorify him, and yet we fail to glorify him in our words, our actions towards one another, our attitudes. We are failing to do the thing we were built to do all the time, and that that sin separates us from God. Not only does it separate us from him in this life, renders us spiritually dead, but it sets us into a position where we're set to be set, separated from Christ forever in eternity. And it was a little bit of a cliffhanger message last night because we ended going like, hey, what are we going to do about what the truth of who Jesus is says about the truth of us? We are busted and we need, we need help. When we pick it up tonight, the, the, the heart of the message is the truth of the death and resurrection of Christ. And at first, for some of you, you'll be like, I don't know how this ties in, but I want to begin with the question of what do we do with this sinful life? What do we do with this broken life? What do we do with this disconnect from God because we failed to live up to the purpose for which we were created? This separation that we all feel and understand, what do we do with it? Well, we can't fix it ourselves. We can't do it. It's not enough to do good deeds. It's not enough to walk old ladies across the street. It's not enough to memorize Bible verses. None of those things will save you. And so we have this question of what do we do about the brokenness within us? What happens with the brokenness in mankind? We need an advocate. I don't know if you've ever had anybody stand up for you. Have you ever had anybody just like stick up for you in a cool way, like an older brother or whatever? The coolest thing that ever happened for me uh, with regard to someone advocating for me happened to me actually when I was in kindergarten. I went to kindergarten just like normal, and uh, on this one particular day, uh, my mom picks me up after school, and she goes, how was kindergarten? And I said, uh, it was great. You know, we just kind of a regular day. We had 
snacks, and we did a craft, and we got to go outside, and then we had nap time, and then we came back in, and the teacher told us the story, and then we did another craft, and then the teacher slapped me, and then we got to go outside again, and then we had, you know, my mom's like, wait, what'd you say? And I was like, we had two crafts? And she's like, no, after that. And I was like, oh, the teacher slapped me. And she's like, what? What do you mean the teacher slapped you? And I said, well, the teacher slapped me because the vacuum in our classroom was broken. And my mom's like, that doesn't make any sense, right? What do you mean the teacher slapped you because the vacuum was broken? Well, here, here's the whole story. And I told my mom, in my classroom as a kindergartner, we had uh, one, one of those upright vacuums, probably like you have in your house, right? It's a tall vacuum. And uh, when you're going to wind up the cable, there's like a hook at the top and a hook at the bottom, and you just wind the cable around it. You guys know what I'm talking about? But in my house, in the late 70s, early 80s, in my house, we had what's called a canister vacuum. Canister vacuum is like a little box on wheels with a hose that comes out of it. And the cord, when you want to put the cord away, you don't wind it up. You just give it a little tug, right? You just go, ding, ding, and then it goes, and just sucks back in like the spaghetti on Lady and the Tramp, right? Or just like Jesus through the roof, right? Okay, so... Uh, so you just talking about it. Well, as a kindergartner, after we did the craft, my job in the classroom was to put away the vacuum. And so the teacher tells me to put it away. I go over to the vacuum. I grab onto the power cable, and I go, ding, ding, and nothing happens. So I think the vacuum's broken. Teacher comes back to me a few minutes later, and she says, hey, why didn't you put the vacuum away? And I said, it's broken. And she goes, it's not broken. We just used it. Now put it away. So I pull on the thing again. Nothing happens. I stand there. She comes back a few minutes later. She goes, I thought I told you to put the vacuum away. And I said, teacher, I told you it's broken. And she says, don't talk back to me. Put the vacuum away or you're going to get in trouble. So she walks away again. I pull on the cord again. Think, think. Nothing happens, right? I stand there. The teacher comes back a third time and she says, I do not understand why you have not done the thing I asked you to do. And I said, I told you it's broken. And she slapped me across the face. And she goes, don't talk back, right? So I was like, oh, and then she wound it up. And I was like, oh, that's how that works, but whatever. So I tell my mom this story, and my mom's not too happy, but, you know, I, I think it's over and done. The next day, you guys, I go to kindergarten just like normal. We do the Pledge of Allegiance. We say a little prayer. I go to a Christian school, you know, say a little prayer. And then, uh, and then uh, there's a knock on the door, right? We're sitting down for the first part of kindergarten. There's a knock on the kindergarten classroom door. And we're all kind of excited because we all watched Mr. Rogers back then, and we just assumed it was the mailman, right? It was going to be really fun. But uh, my teacher goes, and she opens the door. And you guys, you're not going to believe this. My mom has come to my kindergarten class. So neat. And here's what's weird. She's got our, our vacuum from home. She brought our vacuum cleaner from our house to my kindergarten. And so my friends are all like, is your mom going to clean our room? And I was like, I don't know. Uh, my mom doesn't say anything to my teacher. She just pushes into the classroom. She walks past my teacher and over to my teacher's desk. And then she sets our vacuum from our house down on my teacher's desk. The teacher's standing on the other side. And without saying a word, my mom just eyeballs my teacher. And then she slowly starts to pull the, the power cable out of the vacuum. And she pulls it all the way until it's fully extended. And my friends and I are all just watching. And then she reaches out like this and she goes... Dink, dink, and he goes in like this, and then my mom goes boom, and she slapped my kindergarten teacher across the face. Yeah. And then she scooped up the vacuum and she left, and that was that, right? So I will tell you that uh, as a kindergartner, I was pretty happy. Now you can't you can't be punching teachers in California today. There's all kinds of legalities involved in that, but. Uh, I was pretty happy as a kid that my mom came and stood up for me, right? That's like a story I remember like it happened yesterday. There is nothing like the feeling of having someone come to your rescue. 
There's nothing like the feeling of having someone defend you or advocate for you or stand up on your behalf. What I want you to understand about the purpose of Christ in coming, remember at the very beginning of our week, Jesus is talking to Pilate, and Pilate says to him, are you a king? And he says, I have come to be a witness to the truth, and anybody who listens to my word knows the truth. And Pilate says, what is truth? Jesus came to reveal the truth of God in the body, right? To show us what God is like. Remember, we looked in John 1, in verse 18, where it says, no one's ever seen God, but Christ has made him known. God came to the earth to, re or Jesus came to the earth to reveal to us who God is in terms we can understand. But it is also true to say that Jesus came to the earth to rescue us from sin and death. I want to move quickly through some of these chapters in John. We don't have time to look at them in depth, and you can always come back to them later. But I want you to see the trajectory of the ministry of Christ as he heads to the cross so that you'll understand what's going on here. In John chapter 10, we'll pick it up there, Jesus gives uh, sort of the famous speech in John 10, you may have heard of it before, where he talks about himself as the good shepherd. And he talks about his affection and care for the sheep who know him, and he knows them. The, the ministry of Christ is always about showing us that God wants to have a relationship with the people he created. But one interesting little tidbit, uh, just for what it's worth, in John 10, 17, Jesus says this, and I don't want you to miss it. In the midst of that speech, he says, for this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. The charge I have, this charge I have received from my Father. Sometimes when people think about the death of Jesus, they think he was murdered. I, I want to remove that idea from your mind. Jesus, in the classical sense, is not a martyr. He was not murdered, right? Some people will say, oh, the Jews killed Jesus, or Judas betrayed him, and Judas killed Jesus, or the Romans killed Jesus. I want to be really clear that Jesus says in John 10 that it wasn't the Romans, and it wasn't the Jews, and it wasn't Judas, and it wasn't the Pharisees, it wasn't any of those people. Jesus says out of his own mouth, nobody has the power to take my life from me. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it back up again. This is important because what I want you to see is that when Jesus dies... It's not because he's tricked. It's not because he's betrayed. It doesn't catch him by surprise. Jesus came to the earth to go to the cross. He wasn't put on the cross. It was his intention and his destination from the outset. He went there. Nobody puts the Son of God anywhere he doesn't want to go. Jesus went to the cross, and he went to the cross for the glory of God and the good of his sheep, his people, us, that's John 10. In John chapter 11, in John chapter 11, we see uh, the story of the death of his friend Lazarus. You may have heard of this before. Lazarus dies, and Jesus hears about it. He waits a little while. He ends up going, and Lazarus has already died. When he gets there in John chapter 11, uh, verse 21, Martha, Lazarus' sister, says to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I want you to hear this. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He goes on in John chapter 11 to raise Lazarus from the dead. The power of life over death. 
In John chapter 12, uh, when we get to John chapter 12, and I know we're moving quickly, there's a pivotal moment where Jesus finally announces that his hour has come. If you were to read the first 11 chapters of John in great detail, you would see there are multiple times where Jesus looks at the crowd, even at his mom one time, and says, my hour has not come. The time is not right. But we get to John 12, and Jesus goes, now's the time. And what that indicates is, that again, the intentionality of Jesus, but also that Jesus had a destination. We see after John 12 that Jesus moves toward Jerusalem with the intention of laying down his life. He understands the clock, even though nobody else gets it. Jesus says in John chapter 12, uh, in John 12, 23, Jesus says, um, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus says there's a death coming, but it's going to produce something spectacular. Jesus knows what he's doing, and he starts moving toward Jerusalem. We come to John 13, and again, I know we're moving quickly, but by John 13, uh, Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples. He's entered into Jerusalem, and he's washing their feet to show them the kind of leader he is. He says to them, I'm washing your feet to show you that if you want to be great, you have to be a servant. You have to be sacrificial. You have to give yourself away. What Jesus is pointing to is the fact that to follow him means to lay down your life, to lay down your pride, to lay down your claims to power. Jesus models this by washing their feet. And he says to them, if I, your master, have done this for you, then you who follow me should live this very same life. It's also uh, in, uh, in John chapter 13 that Jesus points at Judas as being the betrayer. He talks to Peter about the fact that Peter will deny him, and Peter argues about that. We get to John chapter 14. When we get into John chapter 14, Jesus is trying to comfort them. And that's where we get the, the verse we looked at early in the week where he says he's the way, the truth, and the life. In John 14, 1, he says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Right now, remember, he's just said, one of you is going to betray me. That's Judas. And he's also said to Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And so they're a little bit stirred up. And they're like, what's going on? We thought this guy was going to be a boss. We thought this guy was going to be a military leader. We thought he was going to set up an earthly empire. And now even he's talking about us betraying him and abandoning him. So Jesus says in John 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas, always good for a great question, the disciple Thomas interjects. I love the fact that he feels comfortable to ask Jesus a, a kind of uh, innocent question here. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going right? How can we know the way? Jesus has just said, you don't need to be freaked out because I'm going to go and prepare a place for you and you're going to be with me and you know the way. And Thomas is like, no, we don't. We don't know where you're going. We don't know what, what place you're talking about. We don't know what's going on. And that's the context in which Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way. It's like he's looking at Thomas and he's looking at us and he's saying, if you're looking for a road map, I'm the map, right? I am the truth, he says. And I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas is like, we don't know how to get there. And he's like, yes, you do, because you know me. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. That is the route. 
to the Father, and we will be together. Remember when we talked on the first night, or actually the second session maybe, about the fact that the story of the Bible is a story of oneness to brokenness and otherness to oneness restored. Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's saying, that oneness is going to be restored. We will be together. Harmony between God and man, man and woman, man and man and creation, all of it will be restored. That's the route we're taking. So Jesus is comforting them. He's trying to remind them who he is. He's trying to remind them that they know him and he is the way. We get to John 15 and he encourages them to abide in him. To abide in him, to rest in him, in what he has said and how he has modeled a certain life, to rest in his word and his truth. He tells them that that's the answer and that's the recipe for joy. To remain actively still in who he is. And he goes on to say at the end of 15 and 16 that they're going to face trouble. That there are going to be people, just like there have been people who want to kill him, there are going to be people who want to kill the disciples, that it's going to be hard. But he points to the fact that he will send his Holy Spirit, who will both be a comfort and a guide. And then by the time we get to John 17, Jesus prays what's called his high priestly prayer. You should read that on your own time if you have a minute. But the high priestly prayer is essentially Jesus coming before the Father, not just to pray for his disciples, but to pray for us. He prays for, I don't know if you know this, you're in the Bible. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are in the Bible, you are mentioned in John 17. If you're a Christ follower, he prays for you. He prays for me in John 17, I'm right there. And what he prays is, that just like Christ and the Father and the Spirit are one, that they're united, there's wholeness, there's shalom, that we will be united. That we'll be united with him and that we'll be united with each other. He prays for unity and wholeness, for peace among his people and that his disciples will bring that peace. Then by the time we come to 18, Jesus is arrested in 18. Jesus is tried. His disciples scatter just like he said. We talked at the very beginning of the message tonight about the fact that we need an advocate, that we're dead and lost in our sin. Jesus comes to the earth, and he's arrested by his own choice. Yes, Judas betrays him. Yes, Peter denies him. But Jesus is moving toward the cross, and he's moving toward the cross not because he deserves that, not because he did anything wrong. We remember we talked earlier this week about the fact that he lived a perfect life, right? That the sin of us was placed on him who had no sin, it says in Corinthians, right? Jesus lived a sinless life, and he goes to the cross not because he's guilty of anything, but because of his great love for us and his great desire to glorify his Father by rescuing all of us and creation. Jesus is arrested, and he's tried. He's whipped and beaten. His beard is torn out. He's accused, right? And ultimately, he's crucified on a Roman cross, and he's buried dead. When Jesus goes to the cross, he takes the sin of the world. We were talking at the beginning about the fact that we need an advocate, that we can't save ourselves, that there's not enough good deeds we can do, that there's not enough uh, you know, old folks to take care of. Right? It isn't about our work. I mentioned to you early in the week that Jesus goes into the temple, and remember what he says to the money changers there, the people selling pigeons? He says, don't make my father's house a house of exchange. And what he's pointing at there is that, is that our worship of God is not about a trade. There isn't anything to be bought and sold. That the Father's house is a house for the reception of gifts. It's a place to receive what God offers freely. Jesus goes to the cross. He takes our sin, my sin and your sin, all my brokenness and your brokenness upon himself. Isaiah says that the sin or the iniquity of us all is placed on him. He's a substitute. He's a sacrifice for us. 
And Jesus goes to the cross and is crucified. The Romans at the time were experts at making sure the people they wanted dead were dead. So here's the thing. You may hear people say, oh, he was in a coma or he just got knocked unconscious or whatever. No, when the Romans certified a person dead, he was dead. Nobody was better at that than them. And they put his dead body in the ground. Killed. You can read about this in 19. Killed for me. Killed for you. And if that's where the story ended, that would be a pretty bleak story, right? Jesus comes to the earth. He cares for people. He talks about a different way of living. He turns all the conventions on their head. He reveals the truth of who God is and the truth of who we were created to be. And then he dies. And if you wonder whether or not the disciples were initially dismayed by that, don't wonder anymore. They they were dismayed. Jesus had told them he would rise from the dead. He had told them all this was going to happen, but they completely missed it. And so when they put Jesus' dead body in the tomb, the disciples don't know what they're going to do next. And in fact, some of his friends go to the tomb after three days to prepare his body for final rest in the Hebrew tradition. They took spices and ointments because they thought his body was going to be in the tomb forever. So if you have a question about whether they understood what was going on, they didn't. They go to the tomb to prepare his body for final rest in the Hebrew tradition. And when they get there, like we heard on the video a minute ago, the stone has been rolled away. The tomb is empty. You can read about this in John 20. The tomb is empty. Jesus has risen from the dead. Jesus didn't just die for our sin, but he rose. He rose. And, I, you know, I mean, this is what we celebrate on Easter, right? If you've been around the church at all, the, if you've been to an Easter thing, like, as a kid growing up in a religious home, like, we always had to get dressed up for Easter. I was always a little bit confused by Easter. I don't know if any of you are, but, like, people would go, like, oh, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. Like, happy Easter. Here's a chocolate egg, you know, and you're like, I don't know, what was the, what's the thing with the rabbits? I don't really understand. Like, was Jesus riding on a bunny when he came out of the tomb? Because if so, like, how massive was that bunny? It'd be amazing, right? I kind of didn't understand the connection between the way we celebrate Easter or even like, for me as a kid, like, as a younger person, when I think about Easter, I think like, I don't know why we're making such a big deal out of it, right? Because we've already established that Jesus is God. So, like, if Jesus is God, why is it a big deal that he rose from the dead? Like, if I was God, I'd be rising from the dead all the time, you know? Like, I'd get up in the morning and choke on my breakfast and die and rise from the dead and then get on my bike and ride in front of a truck and get squished and then rise from the dead. Like, if I was God, like, rising from the dead would be my signature move, you know? Like, I'd be pulling that all the time. People would be like, oh, great, here comes McWaters. He's going to rise from the dead. He always does that, right? Like, I didn't get why we make such a big deal about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, because that doesn't seem like such a big thing if you're God. Like, isn't that just normal? Can I tell you why human beings throughout the centuries since the resurrection celebrate Easter? It isn't because Jesus necessarily did something that was super incredible for Jesus, because he's Jesus. The reason we party on Easter is because when Jesus walked out of the tomb, he proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he had the power to make dead things live. And I, and you, and every human being created in the image of God on this planet is dead in their sin. What we need is not a great teacher, to be honest. What we need is is not a great leader. What we need is not a revolutionary. What we need is not an empire builder. What we need is, is none of the things we might think we need. What we need is somebody who can make dead things live because we're dead in our sin. Jesus comes and he not only pays the penalty for our sin by shedding his blood and dying on our behalf, but he walks out of that tomb and he proves that he has the power to make dead things live. And then the Bible teaches that he doesn't just celebrate his own ability to make dead things live. He then, by his grace, and that's important, 
extends to us resurrection life as well. You can't buy it. We're not doing a thing tonight where we say, hey, if you're dead in your sin and you want to be raised by Jesus, you just got to sign up to go to Bible college or you just got to give $100,000 or you got to promise to work at Hume Lake for three summers or whatever and then you can have resurrection life. Do not make his house a house of trade. There is no exchange. There is no trade. There is no buying or selling. By his grace. Grace means undeserved, unearned generosity and kindness. By his grace, Jesus offers to us the very same resurrection life that brought him out of the tomb. If you've never put your faith in Christ and you're sitting within the sound of my voice, according to what the Bible says and according to the life that Jesus lives, when we look at the truth of Jesus' life, we see the truth of our own lives. And the truth of our own lives is that we're busted and so is everybody else we know. Jesus dies on the cross and he rises from the dead and he says, I see that you're busted. Can I fix that for you? I love you. I created you for more than this. Wouldn't you like to live a life that is aligned with the purpose for which you were created, to know God and to be in harmony with others and creation? I can offer you that, Jesus says, and all you have to do is believe in me. The most famous verse in the Bible, it's actually in John 2. John, it's John 3. I meant John 2, T-O-O, -O, right? It's also in John. In John 3, 16, the most famous verse in the Bible, it says, God loved the world so much that he gave the only son he had that anybody who believes in him won't perish but instead would have eternal life. For a long time I'd think about that verse and I'd kind of wish, I know this sounds like heresy, but I'd kind of wish I could change the verse. Because there's a part of me that sort of wishes that verse says, God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that anybody who'd ever seen a picture of Jesus wouldn't perish but instead would have eternal life. Right? It'd be really easy, I could like, draw a picture of a dude with a beard and a blue sash, and I could be like, hey, Hume Lake, check this out. Boop, right? Everybody be made spiritually alive. Or I wish the verse said, God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that anybody who'd ever heard his name wouldn't perish, but instead would have eternal life, because I'd go, hey, pay attention, Jesus. Everybody be made spiritually alive. It'd be rad, right? But that isn't what the verse says, and there's an important distinction here I don't want you to miss. miss. The reason John 3.16 reads the way it does is important. It doesn't say that just anybody who hears his name or anybody who goes to church or anybody who's seen a picture of him is transformed. What it says is that God loved the world so much that he gave his son Jesus that anybody who believes. Why does it have to be belief? Well, belief is the one thing nobody else can do for you. See, I can make you look at a picture of Jesus and because I'm a follower of Jesus, I want you to look at that picture if it's going to make you spiritually alive. I know the difference that Jesus makes. I want everybody in this room to be made spiritually alive like I've been made spiritually alive. And so if there was a way that I could just show you a picture and trick you into the kingdom of God, I'd do it. But it's not about looking at a picture or hearing something called out audibly. It's about belief. It doesn't matter how bad I want you to go from death to life. It doesn't matter how bad I want you to believe in Jesus. I can't believe for you. Your pastors and leaders, they can't believe for you. Your parents can't believe for you. It's not enough to go to church because you can go to church and not believe. It's not enough to, to go on mission trips or come to Christian camp. You know as well as I do, you can go through the motions in a place like this and not believe in Jesus. You can go through all those motions. You can see a picture or hear a word and not be transformed. The key is belief, faith. And when you put your faith in Christ, the Bible says in the moment that you put your faith in him, you are made new. It's not a thing that happens when you die. Sometimes we think about uh, the whole goal of Christianity being like, oh, don't you want to go to heaven when you die? Can I tell you that Jesus' goal was not to get you to heaven. Jesus' goal was to make you spiritually alive right now. And heaven just frosting on the cake. 
He wants you to be spiritually alive right now. And throughout the centuries since Jesus walked out of that tomb, there have been people like me who have heard the story of Jesus and said, yeah, I don't want to be dead in my sin anymore. I'm trusting Jesus to do what I can't do. I grew up in a religious home, and like I said already, my dad was actually a pastor in Phoenix, Arizona. When I was 13, I came home from a summer camp, uh, and my dad, on the day after I got back from camp, took all my dirty clothes out of my suitcase, and he put his clothes into them, and he left our family, right? He left our family on a Monday. And uh, I remember kind of just being shocked by that, because like my dad's the pastor, right? My dad's the guy who tells other people about Jesus. My dad is the one who taught me everything I know about the Bible, my dad, like, if you had to imagine, for me as a little kid, like, when I tried to imagine what Jesus was like, I just kind of imagined a guy with a beard who was also like my dad, right? And on that Monday in an August of uh, my, the year between my seventh and eighth grade year, my dad left my mom, he left our family, he quit his job at the church, and I had what people might call a crisis of faith, right? Because everything I knew about God I'd learned from that guy, and all of a sudden, that guy turns out to be a liar. Turns out my dad was having an affair with my mom's best friend, and they got a divorce, and my dad remarried within a week of their divorce coming through. And as an eighth grader, as an eighth grader, I remember saying, everything that I have learned about the Bible is a lie, because the guy who taught me is a liar. And so I became increasingly angry and frustrated. I wasn't a very nice freshman. I wasn't a very nice sophomore or a junior, I, I became kind of, um, kind of mean to Christians because I thought they were idiots, you know, because of my own life, because of my own experience. Like, I had seen a guy be fake. I had seen a guy pretend to be true and not be true. And that made the whole thing seem like a sham. Between my junior and senior year of high school, uh, there was this girl who invited me to go to, there was a girl who invited me to go to camp, and I would never have gone. I just, I, um, I would never have gone because I didn't want to be around a bunch of Christians, but she was hot. And so, <laughs> so she goes, she goes, uh, <laughs> she goes, hey, Darren, are you going to go to church camp? And I was like, no. And she goes, oh, I was really hoping you were going to go. And I was like, yeah, I think I am going to go to that church camp. And uh, so I went, and uh, I'll, t- I'll talk to you about her later. But... Um, I went to camp, and then we get there, and you know how they do like early morning worship out on the deck here at Hume? They did that same thing at this camp I went to in Arizona. It's like the early morning prayer and praise for all the like super spiritual kids that get up and sing or whatever early. And, uh, and this girl, she's like, hey, Darren, are you going to come to early morning prayer and praise? And I was like, no. And she's like, oh, I was hoping you'd sit by me. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to go to early morning prayer and praise. So, <laughs> so every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I go to early morning prayer and praise. True story. And then on Thursday, check this. Thursday after early morning prayer and praise, the youth pastor asked me to stay behind, right? And I don't know, like, what I hadn't done anything wrong, but he goes, hey, would you just stick back for a minute? So I did, and he goes, uh, hey, I just, we got one day left of camp. He goes, I just want to ask you not to come to early morning prayer and praise tomorrow. And I was like, why? why? Like, here's the thing. I didn't even want to go to that stupid thing, but when, you know when somebody tells you you can't do a thing, and then you're like, I'm definitely going, right? So he goes, I, would you please not come tomorrow? And I was like, Why? And he goes, Darren, he goes, I've been a youth pastor for 10 years or whatever. And he goes, and all the time I've been doing this, he goes, this isn't good youth ministry strategy, by the way. But he goes, Darren, you're the stupidest kid I've ever worked with. And I was like, what the crap, you know? And uh, he goes, no, he goes, stay with me. He goes, you know, he goes, I know you're angry. And I know you're bitter. And I know you've got all this frustration towards God. 
because of some things that your dad did, and they were terrible things. You feel betrayed, and you feel lied to, and you've got all this frustration because of some things that your dad did. And he goes, but the reality is, dude, from where I sit, you're just like your dad. And I was like, oh, oh, no, you didn't, right? Like, I remember my fists clenching, and I kind of got my chest up into his chest, and the kind of kid I was, like, the veins stood out in my neck, and I, I cursed at him. And I said, dude, you can say some stupid stuff to me, but don't you ever call me like my dad again, ever. I'll never be like him. And he goes, no, 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 just listen. He goes, your, your mom was faithful to your dad every day of her life. And he cheated on her and he betrayed her. That's what your dad did. And he says, the God of the universe has been only faithful to you every day of your life. And you cheat on him every day, bro. And I was like, yeah. He goes, he said to me, he goes, you may not have cheated on your wife with a woman yet, but you are absolutely a broken cheater, and you'll do that thing because you're already doing this thing in your relationship with God. And I, I don't advocate that as a ministry strategy. Calling kids stupid is not always uh, doable, right? But the Holy Spirit spoke through that man, and I recognized that while my dad was false, Jesus was true. And not only was Jesus true, but Jesus was like the only thing that was true. As a junior in high school, I recognized I didn't know what else I could trust. I didn't know who else I could trust. I didn't know what else I could believe. But God had been faithful to me. Jesus came and he took my sin and he went to the cross on my behalf. He died there and rose again. And he didn't just say, I paid for your sin. Now you're going to be annihilated. He died on the cross and he rose from the grave and he said, I want you to be with me. Would you like to have life? And I fell to my knees in a chapel at a camp in Prescott, Arizona, and I gave my life to Jesus at 17. I said, Jesus... I want you to save me from sin and death. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I don't care if I ever make any money. I don't care. I don't care. I'll just, I'll just give my life to you. And, uh, and that's what I've been doing, right? That's what I've been doing since then. Since I was 17, I've just kind of been go, going wherever God tells me to go. And sometimes that's great, and sometimes it sucks, right? But I know it's true. There are some of you in the room tonight, and I don't want to hurt your feelings, but you're looking for something true. And I'll tell you, Jesus is all. He's it. He loves you. He died for you because you're broken and so am I. And he offers you resurrection life. Sometimes when this is described, people will go, uh, oh, you need, to, you, you need to ask Jesus into your heart. And I know what they're saying. I know, I know what they're saying. But um, asking Jesus into your heart sounds to me a little bit like picking teams from dodgeball. You know, like... Like Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad and all these guys are lined up and you're like, oh, I don't know, you know, and, and Jesus is like, oh, I really hope he picks me, you know, and then you're like, oh, I'm going to pick Jesus into my heart. And he's like, yay, it's not the right picture. Can I, can I paint a picture for you that's better than that? It's not you choosing Jesus, Hume Lake. Right now, what I'm inviting you to do is to realize that Jesus already picked you, that he's been faithful to you every day of your life and he will be faithful to you the rest of your life. And I, I, don't, I can't point you to anything else that I'm sure is true. I can't point you to anything else that I'm confident is true. But tonight, I'm standing on this stage, and I'm telling you, if you're looking for something true, it's Jesus. He died for you because he loves you. And what I'm inviting you to do tonight is to, is to just put your faith in him. To say, Jesus, will you save me from sin and death? And in that moment when you put your faith in him, you're made new. The great thing about being made new is that someday your body's still going to kick it, right? You're still going to get older. You're still going to get, something's going to, you'll get hit by a truck or something. I don't know. <laughs> Me too. 
the great thing about spiritual life is that when your physical body kicks it, you go into eternity in the presence of God forever and ever and ever. Nobody can take that away from you. It never changes. Fixed in that position for eternity. You put your faith in God and you were made new and that is eternal. Restored to wholeness and oneness. Restored to shalom. Would you bow your heads with me? I'm asking you to bow your head um, in this moment, not, not necessarily because I want you to pray, and I definitely don't want you to go to sleep, but I'm asking you to bow your head because in a room full of a thousand people, I kind of want you to get alone if you can. Try for a second not to think about the person sitting next to you, and try for a second not to think about what you're going to do later, and try for a second not to think about all the other things that could cloud your mind. And in this moment, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I want you to just do an inventory in your own life. I invite you to just ask yourself the most important question that a human being ever asks herself or himself. And it's this, have I put my faith in Jesus who is true? Is it yes or no? And if you're here tonight and the answer to that question is yes, you've put your faith in Christ, then I want to remind you that you're fixed in that position. That it's his work to hold you and to keep you and to care for you by his grace. And you you cannot fall out of the grace of God. But if you're here tonight sitting in this room and the answer to the question is no, I've never put my faith in Christ, then I have an invitation for you. And the invitation is, why don't you believe in him? And why don't you do that right now? If you've listened to us talk about the truth of God, and you've listened to us talk about the truth of scripture, and you've listened to us talk about the truth of the life of Christ, and the truth of who we are, and now tonight we've talked about the truth of his death and resurrection, If the God of the universe has sent his spirit to draw you to his son and you're sitting here tonight and you would say, I need to put my faith in Christ to rescue me from sin and death and to give me resurrection life. If you're here tonight and you've never done that, why don't you do it right now? I remember what it's like. I remember what it's like before I gave my life to Jesus and I remember I'm living what it's like afterwards. And while I don't know the names of every person in this room, I, I would love to just even be able to pray for your face. And so if you're here tonight, with everybody else's head bowed, if you're here tonight and, and you're in this room and you'd say, Darren, I've never put my faith in Jesus, but I want to do that. If that's you, would you just look up here at me? O- only just so we can catch eyes. Thanks, dude. I, all I want to do is look into your eyes and I'm praying for your face as I look. But I'd just like to share that moment between us because I've been there too. As soon as you catch my eyes, you can look back down. Thanks. But, but if you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus and you're like, yeah, I want to trust Jesus to rescue me. Thanks, dude. Can we have this moment between us? Thanks. God bless these faces. Thanks. I've never put my faith in Christ, but I want to do that. It's awesome. I'm going to take a minute and do this because it's meaningful to me. Thanks, brother. Thanks. Thanks. I see you guys there. Thanks. Thanks, dude. Thank you. Who else? I see you right there, man. If you're way in the back, you might have to give me like a little wave because I'm, you know, I'm like an old man. Good. Thanks. How about on this side? Thanks. Thanks. It's awesome. Praise God. Thanks for trusting me with this moment. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Just want to look into your eyes and thank God for you and thank thank God for the way he's moving in you. Thanks, dude. God 
God, we praise you for the fact that <laughs> those are good ways. Thanks for that. All the way in the back. Who else? If I'm not seeing you, thanks. Thank you. Right there. Thanks. All over. Thanks, you guys. Okay, balcony. Let's do this. Thanks. I see you. Thanks. Over here. Thank you. See, I'm putting my faith in Christ. Yeah. I see your hand there. I see you guys away in the back. My eyes aren't so bad. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. I'm on the front here. Thank you, guys. I see you right over there in the corner. Yep. You're in the front. Okay, if I'm not seeing you, there we go. Give me a wave. If I'm not seeing you, give me a wave. All the way back. Thanks. Right here. God, thank you for these. Anybody else down here that I, I just want to look in your eyes for a second. If that's you, if you never put your faith in Christ, give me a, give me a nod or a wave or something. Okay, grab my attention. Praise God. Okay. I want to have everybody look up at me. What the Bible teaches us is that it isn't even, so what's just happened? I, don't, I didn't count that. We didn't count, we're, not, we're not in the process of trying to count those things. But you, you heard me. I'm acknowledging people, sometimes sitting in twos and threes. There, there's, you know, there, there's a ton of people in here putting their faith in Christ. You know what's really cool? The, Jesus says that it's not even possible to look up at me and admit you need Jesus unless God is drawing you to Jesus. So what that means is that your ability to even acknowledge your need for a Savior means that God is moving in you, right? That is amazing. I want to say to you that if you looked up here at me, or even if you didn't look up here at me, but God's moving in you... Uh, Right now in Ponderosa Chapel is not the only time to put your faith in Christ, right? I think I remember sometimes uh, when I was like, in, you know, like a younger person, sixth grade, whatever, feeling like if I didn't put my faith in Jesus during the chapel, that was it. Like I was done for, right? You don't have to put your faith in Jesus right here. You can put your faith in Jesus at the snack shop or on a bus or out in the wine. It doesn't matter. Like God doesn't care where your feet are planted. Remember when Jesus said that to the woman at the well? Samaria, on the mountain. Who, God doesn't care about your feet, where your physical location is, what he cares about your heart. Here's what I'm going to say. If you looked up here at me or even if you didn't, I encourage you to share what God is doing in your heart with your family, the people around you, the, the, the cabin, the leaders, your, your youth pastors, your, your volunteers, core group leaders, whatever. Tell them what God's doing. Tell them that you put your faith in Christ. Tell them that you're wrestling with it. Tell them that you have questions. Tell them that you looked at me or that you didn't want to look at me, but, you, but you're kind of stirring still. Because this Christian life is not about Lone Rangerness, right? This Christian life is about family. It's about wholeness between God and man and man and man and man and man and God and creation and all of us together being one. We need each other. You can't do this by yourself. Neither can I. So whatever God's stirring in you, I invite you to share that with the people around you. The band's gonna come back out right now, and when they come, they're gonna lead us into another song. We're gonna celebrate what God is doing among us and what God has done in human history. And when that's done, we're gonna have an opportunity to respond right here in the room. The leaders will come back and they'll explain that to you, but I encourage you to respond to what God is doing in your heart. Let me pray for you. God, I wanna pray for the, those in this room who looked up at me and those who didn't but are right on the precipice of putting their faith in you. I thank you for those who had the courage to say, I need Jesus to save me from sin and death. I praise you for your work in us that draws us to yourself. I pray for those who are still wrestling with who you are and the truth of who you are and the truth of your word. I pray that you would draw them to yourself. I thank you for those in this room who put their faith in you a year ago or 10 years ago 
And I pray, God, that you would remind us daily how blessed and grateful we are, how lucky and, and blessed we are to be your kids, to be given the gift of resurrection life, even though we deserve death. And I pray tonight for the conversations that will happen in this chapel, the conversations that will happen in the cabins, the conversations that will happen out on a wooden slat fence around this place, God, that you would help us to seek you well and to find you. Thank you for your love. And I thank you for the young lady who invited me to camp. It means a lot. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.